Williams, breakaway pass, Anze Kopitar scores! Anze Kopitar on a breakaway goal, 8 minutes and 13 seconds into overtime and the It is June 5th, 2012. This is Season 2, Episode number 22 of the Sportscasters. I'm the host, Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Russ. Hey. And the Los Angeles Kings are one game away from being the Stanley Cup champions in what has been an absolute incredible run uh, through yeah, the okay. playoffs, one that I've really never seen anything quite like it. I mean, the dominance that they've shown. Uh, the the Rangers team that won the uh, 94 Cup, they started that dominant. They had swept the Islanders and then beat the Capitals in five games. But then, of course, the next two series were seven games. But this Kings team has just been unbelievable. And we're going to talk more about the NHL and the NBA playoffs later in the show. Also on today's show, we have uh, Albert Chen, a uh, staff writer from Sports Illustrated, does some really interesting baseball work. It's his first appearance on the show, so we're going to welcome him for the first time. Also, Jeff Perlman is going to be on the show for the second time to take a bow as his book, Sweetness, was named the Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Month, Book of the Year. And it'll be interesting to see where that ranks for Jeff in terms of his all-time great accomplishments. And we're going to talk to one of the people from the blogosphere, the NHL blogosphere, who uh, loves the Kings the most, and that's Matt Wrights from ViewFromMySeats.com. He joined us in October when we were previewing the NHL season. At the time, he was writing for NBC Sports Talk, uh, but he's since left that position and is focusing on his blog and his own work. Uh, But he's going to talk to us kind of about what it's like to be in L.A. right now, uh, one win away. Don and I were talking about what Buffalo would be like, and we almost can't imagine what no. the city would be like 24 hours away from hosting a game where the Stanley Cup will be in the building and have a chance to be won by the home team. Uh, the Stanley Cup was in the building in Buffalo twice, but on both of those occasions, uh, the only team that could win it was the road team, and unfortunately on both occasions, the road team did win it, the 75 Flyers and the 1999 Cheaters. <laughs> uh, but um, So we have a great show for you today, Albert Chen, Jeff Perlman, Matt Wrights. We're also going to update the book club, let you know where we're going to be going in the next couple months with that. We're going to have another opportunity to uh, remind you to win books from us uh, by emailing us to sportscasters at gmail.com. Before we get into all that, I want to remind you to check out uh, episode number 21 of season two from last week. We had Greg Wyshynski, who's probably in a lot of pain right now, the Puck Daddy, probably the biggest Devils fan in the blogosphere, uh, but he joined us to preview the Cup last week. And also we had two authors, Mark Cram Jr. and John Fox, uh, the John Fox, uh, <laughs> talk to us about their individual books. And also don't forget to check out our other podcast uh, at footballnation.com. This week we have the... AFC South blogger from ESPN.com. Real interesting interview um, about the AFC South. So we have a lot to do today. Pick four, of course, will end the show. Let's get things started as we do every week with uh, three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. 
I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. Alright, I'll get us started. Big day in sports on Saturday. Um, something we don't talk about a lot, but I'll have another. Uh, has a chance to win the Triple Crown on Saturday. Oh, right, yeah. uh, first time since the 70s that it would happen. I think 1978 around there was the last time it happened. Never in our lifetime. Uh, and I guess I want to ask you a couple questions about it, Don. One is, will you watch this? Like, Because the Triple Crown is up for grabs, does that make this appointment television? Because obviously, we're not huge horse racing fans. We're not huge gamblers. I mean... Y- we're not going to go to the TV at 6 o'clock or whenever they race on Saturday uh, because we have a bet or because we care about the sport. If they're going to get us there, it's going to be because of this story of it, the Triple Crown, and, and specifically right, right. to see this. Does this draw you? Uh, honestly, probably not. If I remember it's on and I'm watching TV, then, yeah, I'll probably flip to it just because I guess it's a chance to watch history. But my guess is I, I – don't remember to watch it. You know, and it's interesting because a hundred years ago in this country, the three biggest sports were boxing, horse racing, and baseball. Right. And I think that's why sometimes we see Commissioner Goodell doing some of the things that he's doing to try to protect the golden goose that is the NFL because he knows from history that just because you're on top of the sports world now doesn't mean you will be even forever, hundred, you know, right. forever. Um and obviously, we know the challenges that are facing the NFL, and, and the biggest one is the safety of their players. Uh, but, you know, this is a day for horse racing to shine, and I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, it will be. I, I'm going to try to watch it. I want to watch it. Right. Uh, you never know what's going to happen on a Saturday. You know, Colston and Tammy are going to be here. They might want to do something besides sit around and watch <laughs> horse racing. And if I'm going to want to watch a basketball game that night or a baseball game, I might skip it to do something family related you know that's kind of the challenging thing but i want to see it i, I want to see i'll have another and i want to see him win i'll be disappointed if i watch it and he doesn't win because i, I want to see it happen but uh, i thought i'd mention it it's saturday they usually run those things after dragging it out for a few hours with bob costas and interviews and things yeah, like yeah. that usually by about six o'clock or six thirty at the latest they get it going so good luck to i'll have another and hopefully one of my three things next week is going to be how a horse winning the Triple Crown has changed the sport, if at all. All right, my first story this week, uh, it happened, I believe, while we were podcasting or the day we podcasted last week, but all the details hadn't totally broken out until afterward. But I feel like it's important enough to revisit it. Uh, Brian Banks, if you don't know him, was a player accused or not a not a player. I mean, he was a blue chip football player for Long in Long Beach, California. He went to Long Beach Poly High School. He uh, had a full scholarship to USC. Uh, he was a blue chip prospect. I mean, he was a freak as far as athleticism and everything went. At 16 years old, he apparently took a girl into a stairwell to make out. When they came out, she accused him of rape. Uh, you can go to ESPN, read countless articles about this. Rick Riley writes a real nice one. He got six years in prison. He ended up serving 62 months. After leaving prison, the girl sent him a friend request on Facebook. Wow. And said, let's let bygones be bygones. Ooh. This girl seems totally vapid. Talk about oblivious. And, right. Just has no idea what what's going on with the world, what she did to this kid. 
Uh, he wore it even after getting out of jail. He was wearing a GPS ankle bracelet. He had to register as a sex offender. Couldn't go near parks, schools, zoos, anything like that. Um, the girl ended up with a $750,000 settlement from the school. And long story short, she basically admitted to him that she was lying. Uh, Ouch. She wasn't... He's not even totally sure why. Uh, he hired an investigator to try to make sure that everything that she was going to say in this conversation was, was recorded. And they they couldn't figure out what her goal was. They kind of think she wanted to get back together with him, like to date him. And she ended up basically admitting that everything she did was wrong or was a lie. And uh, look, it'd be easy for this guy to be really, really angry. And he's not. Uh, he's really actually a really inspirational guy. He's already been offered four tryouts with NFL teams. So hopefully, I mean, he's an easy guy to root for. He's quoted at the end of Rick Riley's article as saying, I know my story makes people angry at first. That's where I was too, at first. But where would it have gotten you to stay mad for 10 years? It's like when you're a little kid and cry about having to clean your room. You can cry and cry, but it doesn't get your room cleaned. I mean, wow. What a great, I, out, what I would a great outlook. be pissed at this girl. And Rick Riley is always good at closing his stuff up. He says, Brian Banks' room is clean again. His heart is spotless. He's holding on to nothing but his dreams. He lost a full decade of his life, and now all he wants is an, wants in exchange is an NFL jersey. Come on, Miami Dolphins. Who's had more hard knocks than Brian Banks? The Dolphins are one of the teams giving him a tryout. Just, it's simultaneously a really nice and a really horrifying story, and hopefully it all works out for this kid. He seems like about as nice as you can be. He was 16 when he was arrested, so he's still only 26. So really, I mean, he's only a kid that would have been... You said he served 62 served months? Served 62 so months. So that's five years. He served... Five of his six years, and he got out on probation where he had to wear his GPS ankle bracelet. Okay. So basically for about 10 years. So they had the trial and all that yeah. that fight. Wow. So, yeah, uh, a nightmare for this kid, and he's not bitter about it. And it just goes to show you, man, there's some people out there that are really strong, and I'm rooting for him. I hope he does land up on the Dolphins, and I'm sure the NFL does too because of what that would mean for hard knocks and everything. But just – it. Terrible tragedy that has a nice ending so far. So hopefully he can he can pull through and find him a spot on a team. He he actually got an offer from uh, outside of football too. The Arizona Diamondbacks basically said that he could uh, just come on in some sort of front office position if they if they needed it. They'll they'll find. Let's see. One of them is to quote work in the front office and explore other sports opportunities. And he said I about fell out of my seat when I read that one because it's just that's just an awesome offer it doesn't make sense but I wow. mean, apparently they just saw something in the kid and wanted to help him out but good for him uh, it's terrible so far so glad to see it turned around well back to what can be the trivial world of sports <laughs> uh, the Montreal Canadiens announced today that Michelle Therrien uh, will be their head coach again again yep. uh, this is the second time that he's had the job and should make people happy because they hated their last coach, Randy Cunningworth, basically because he didn't speak French. Um, and in Montreal, the, probably the biggest French-speaking yeah, city yeah. in Canada, that just didn't play. So Tarion's back, and it's interesting because we talked a little bit about how the NHL is probably – there's a lot of heat in, bat, in the NFL for this, but maybe more so in the NHL. 
just this kind of revolving door of coaches that just kind of keep getting recycled and recycled. You know, it's the yeah. You almost never don't know the name of a of a coach that's coming on somewhere. It seems like if you've done it before, they must assume you can do it. It doesn't matter what your track record is. Uh, he leaves his job as a television analyst for RDS uh, to begin, as I said, a second stint as Canadians coach. Um, so it's interesting because. At one point, the Canadians hired this guy. didn't work out. They fired him. He went on with his life. He went into broadcasting. And now, the Canadians have decided to hire him again. Yeah. And I think one thing against the Canadians is that based on the way it, the reaction was to Cunnyworth and his inability to speak French, the pool which they can hire coaches from shrinks enormously. Yeah, and you have to had a find real, a guy who can speak French. Cunningworth did a nice job uh, in Buffalo's farm system, developing a lot of kids. And I, Montreal's got to get out of that bubble. Uh, I don't know if there's a less relevant Canadian hockey team at this point. And this is their game, and that's a really proud franchise, more cups than any other team in history. But man, I mean, who cares about them anymore? They're not bad enough to be interesting. They're nowhere near good enough to be interesting. It's a strange team, and they just... and there's so much pressure there. I mean, yeah, I can't think of a harder position in sports to play than Montreal Canadiens goalie. It's amazing that Carey Price has come out of that as a successful goalie because they, when both him and Halak were there, they they almost ran him out of town. It felt like Every, everything you read and about. He was him, a kid at the time. He was a kid. He, he came out as the kid that was going to be the next Patrick Waugh, and then three weeks later, they're throwing stuff at. I mean, it's a rough market. And. uh Tarian actually commented about the Montreal pressure cooker. He said, when I got here, I was 38 years old. I came through junior in the American Hockey League. And then from one day to the next, I found myself behind the bench of the Montreal Canadiens in the NHL. It seemed to go too quickly. So I was trying to coach a team based on the experience I had at the time. But obviously, I feel far better prepared today than I did when I was 38. Um, in his lone season, full season behind the Canadiens bench, Team finished regular season with 87 points, which was a 17-point improvement um, from the year where he coached partially, but still wasn't good enough for for Canadians fans. So it's a tough, tough spot to be in, but he's there again. So it'll be inter- interesting to see uh, how it works better this time around, if at all. Yeah, I mean I, that's a team I love to hate as a division rival and. Just the the home job, it feels like they get sometimes, and their fans are kind of obnoxious, but they're a better team when they're relevant, I suppose. It's just more interesting for the league and everything, but they haven't been in a while. My second thing this week, Johan Santana. Johan Santana uh, ending something of a curse, I guess, for the Mets. We talked a couple weeks ago about, I can't remember the player, but there was a Met pitcher or an ex-Met pitcher that went on to throw a no-hitter, and he wasn't alone. He had some company. But well, Nolan Ryan, I mean, has the most no-hitters well, ever, and he started his career as a Met. Right, none there. Right. So, Johan Santana threw the first no-hitter in Mets history. <clears throat> Over 8,000 games. Complete game, uh, five walks, eight strikeouts, so it's not the greatest line you've ever seen in a no-hitter, but no-hitter is a no-hitter, I guess, right? So Yeah, this one was really interesting because, and we talk about it with Jeff Perlman later, but the Mets, I mean, there was a Twitter account at... No, no hitter. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was just one of those things that resonated throughout New York. I mean, Dwight Gooden, who was probably the the one of the great pitching prospects of all time, ended up 
having a no hitter for the Yankees. Yeah, you know, and that's just how it went for them. Now the Padres are the only team left without a no hitter. Uh, and as I said, the Mets have played over eight thousand games for the first one. Santana's a guy coming off of a really bad shoulder injury. Um, returns to do this, so it's a great story there. We talked a little bit about off the air, you know, does five walks diminish it? And then on top of that, there was also a blown call. Yeah. Um, uh, Carlos Beltran scorched on the third base line. It was ruled foul right away. But when it was slowed down and hit the line. it hit the line, you could see the chalk kind of bounce up. So That's baseball, though. Yep. I, I, I have... I have less of a problem with the blown call because of, and I wish I could remember the guy's name. I think it was a uh, uh, Colorado Rocky pitcher. It was a Tiger. Oh, he's a Tiger. Tigers, okay, yeah. but he threw the would have been a perfect game, I think, last year, and the, it was a blown call that that hurt him, and it was a lot of petitioning to change the rule because the game would have been over anyway. He went on to strike out or get out the next batter. Yeah, Armando Galarraga. That's right. Was the pitcher. Yep. That's right. Um, and the umpire was... Uh, he was very well known after that game. Yeah, it was... Uh, did you, well, go on. I'll find the umpire's name. But I have less problem with that. And like you said, the five walks to me... Uh, baseball is funny sometimes. I mean, you can have runs scored against you in a no-hitter, and that just doesn't seem right. And he could have potentially lost that game 2 nothing with a no-hitter if there were stolen bases or anything crazy like that. Um, but I guess that's why you have different stats for no hitters and perfect games. Uh, either way, it's a nice, nice piece of Mets history there. Yeah. So, and you know that that's it for that now. You know what I mean? Now it'll let's move on to the next thing. That, See if the floodgates open. All of a sudden, he'll hit right? And two Jim, more this year. Jim Joyce was the ump. Jim Joyce. Yeah. All right. My third thing. Speaking of baseball, Major League Baseball had their draft yesterday. Was the first round. They, they did some of the second round today, and so on. And for the first time, it's the first time they've had the draft since some rule changes about how you can pay players and things like that. And the first pick in the draft is a kid named Carlos Carrera, who was born in Puerto Rico. Uh, first Puerto Rican-born player to be the first pick in the Major League Baseball draft. And probably the biggest surprise is there's a pitcher uh, from Stanford who was expected to be the first pick. And he ended up sliding to the Pirates. Uh, who drafted eighth, um, and uh, his name is Mark Apple or Appel. Um, uh, so some interesting things there. Uh, Carlos is six foot three, one seventy five. He's a shortstop. Uh, could be a third baseman. Um, what else can we say about him? The second pick uh, was a kid that we're going to talk about later with um, Albert Chen uh, by the Twins. So. Uh, really an interesting interesting first round, and a lot of it has to do with money and, and the way money can be spent and who has how much money to spend bonuses and getting players signed. And There's a great article on ESPN.com by Jerry Krasnick who he kind of goes through everything and, and why things happened the way they did. But basically the, the headline is Carlos Carrera is the first pick of the draft, first Puerto Rican, shortstop. Um, and uh, we'll talk more about that and more about the draft with Albert Chung later. That's got to be pretty solid for the Pirates if this kid is anything like what he was expected to be before he kind of dropped a little bit in the draft. Yeah, I mean, they already have a nice pitching. He wasn't considered a slam dunk talent, but he's considered to be like the most mature player in the draft in terms of his talent. Um, he's going to graduate from Stanford. His team is still playing in the College Baseball World Series. 
Um, so he's kind of focusing right now on that. But what a yeah, great great pick for the Pirates and for Pirates fans to get a guy at eight who could have went at any point before that. Right. Um, he is a Scott Boris client, so sometimes that can be tricky in terms of signing and things like that. But um, yeah, so uh, the draft is uh, draft is going. I think they have like fifty rounds in this thing, so I don't know when it ends. Yeah, the problem with the baseball draft is even more so than hockey. Hockey lately has gravitated more toward the basketball and football mold where a lot of these players are playing right out of the draft. Some of them still have to develop for a few years, but baseball, man, is the development in baseball crazy long. It's almost hard to follow players unless there's someone like a Strasburg who had a really quick Yeah, because, I mean, potentially they could be drafting players out of high school. Yeah, yeah. You know, potentially they're – you know, are they drafting a high school player? Or are you drafting a college player? Are you going to sign the player? Uh, the first pick, as I said, was uh, Carlos Carrera. He went to Houston. Byron Buxton was the second pick. We're going to talk about Byron later. Uh, he went to Minnesota. And like we said, Mark Appel, eighth pick. Um, there was, kind of interestingly, about Appel, who is a right-handed pitcher, there was one, two, three pitchers picked instead of Appel. Wow. So... But like I said, a lot of this has to do with money and signing players, and so it's really complicated. So uh, check it out. The article, as I mentioned, on ESPN.com. You can learn a little bit more. And MajorLeagueBaseball.com obviously has a bunch of stuff on their website about about the draft. And uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes it not like the football draft is almost appointment TV, and you got analysts and live coverage and stuff. Baseball, it's just. Most people have never heard of these players. It just doesn't translate as well as football or basketball. My last thing this week, big, big congratulations to Nick Lidstrom on a tremendous career, a 12-time All-Star, seven-time Norris Trophy winner, Con Smythe winner, four Stanley Cups. He's 10th all-time on the games played list and also happens to coincidentally be 10th all-time on the plus-minus list. I believe he's like 50th overall in scoring, which is not bad for a defenseman. Uh, he's he, arguably the second best defenseman of all time. He's in the conversation for sure. Because, I mean, I think it's a consensus that Bobby, Bobby Orr is the greatest defenseman of all time. So we can say sure. that. We'll just we'll let that be. That's It's a consensus far beyond this program. Right. So who are the names then that come up next? I mean, it's Ray you Bork. hear Bork. You hear Lidstrom now. You hear Scott Niedermeyer. Yeah. Um, you hear... Uh, Pot, Dennis Potvin from the Islanders. It's names like these, and Lidstrom certainly retired with his name right there, either second best or in the conversation for second best. Ever. Yeah, he was an absolute picture of consistency. He had a great year again this year. Um, he says he retired because he felt his wasn't basically wasn't in condition to continue playing at the uh, level he had basically set for himself. Because obviously he's still playing well. His numbers bared that out. He said that at the end of every season, he likes to wait a week or two until like, everything heals up and to see where he's at. And He uh, just didn't feel he had it any more in him to keep doing it. Uh, 42 years old, and to put up the numbers he did is amazing. He's, his last, he was quoted as saying during his press conference, Retiring today allows me to walk away with pride rather than having the game walk away from me. And that that's perfect. Uh you can't say that about every player. Bork probably had a little bit of a decline toward the end of his career. Gretzky had a pretty massive decline the last two or three years of his career. He had one season where he was a minus player. Yeah. Uh, two seasons ago, he finished minus two. 
And I believe... And he won the Norris Trophy. I believe his team was in the playoffs every year he was on it. I could be wrong about He's that. won seven Norris Trophies and one Conn Smythe. Yep. Yeah, an absolutely amazing player. Uh, that's got to be a record for Norris Trophies, I'd imagine. Over 1,000 points. Uh, 1,142 points. 514 penalty minutes. He's a plus 200... Or, excuse me. A 400 something. 514. 514, yeah. Amazing, amazing career and uh, an absolute classy guy. I'm not sure if he won any Lady Bings or anything. Did you say that? But No, he could have, though. Yeah, I He's mean. He's too busy winning Norris trophies. Right, right. But, yeah. Congratulations uh, to Nick Lidstrom. And uh, Dave Holland said when he took the job as a GM, he always kind of dreaded the day that he was going to have to move on without Nick Lidstrom. And. It'll be interesting. It's kind of a re- it's it's a team with some superstars. It's kind of going to have to rebuild as some of them get a little bit older. Yeah, they're certainly in transition. All right, so that's going to do it for three things today. Uh, like we said, Albert Chen's on the show. Jeff Perlman, Matt Wright. So let's take a break and get into it. We'll be right back with Albert Chen. <laughs> Our first guest today lives in Manhattan and is a graduate of Yale University. In 2000, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a staff writer covering baseball, the NFL, college football, and other sports. He has written over 100 stories for the magazine, including recent pieces on young baseball stars Eric Cosmer and Matt Kemp. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Albert Chen. How are you doing today, Albert? I am doing great. It's uh, a pretty, pretty rainy day here in New York, but um, stayed in, caught up with some uh, pretty spectacular French Open matches. But, uh, yeah, all is good. Yeah, so um, Nadal came, or Federer came way back, and so did Djokovic, right? Today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, two incredible matches. I mean, I think Djokovic fought off four match points and um, really uh, was on the ropes. Sanga played an amazing match. Federer just somehow... He, he didn't look so great after two sets and then just, like, completely just crushed uh, Del Potro. So uh, we get the um, the dream uh, semifinal matchup uh, with Murray and Nadal and Federer and Djokovic. Uh, I think the semifinal that everyone wanted. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've been uh, – we've been, you and I have been uh, working on this for a while now, putting this together, set, getting the right time where we, could, where we could talk. It all started, I think – I read a piece you did on Hosmer. I was like, oh, we really we got to talk to this guy. We haven't talked to him yet. And you had mentioned you had a piece coming out on Kemp, which was on was on the cover, I think, of two two magazines ago now, right? Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I guess where I want to start with you is a guy who's written over 100 stories for the magazine. What inspires you to write? Like, what 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 things get you to the keyboard or, or or get you to get on a plane and get out to LA? What was it? I don't know if it's specific about Hosmer or Kemp in particular, or if it's about the piece you wrote on Chim Ming Wong that I noticed in your biography. You're real proud of, but just kind of generally speaking, like what is it you look for? What are the kind of things you like to write about? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure any writer will tell you this, but I I like the non-obvious stories that haven't done, been done before, you know, a story with a few layers, or a story that can be done a little bit differently. I would say, you know, the story about the hitter who had, you know, 13 home runs a month, you know, doing a story on him because of a hot month or because he's a league leader in a category, I think that doesn't interest me as much. Um, 
you know, personally and more specifically, I like kind of taking conceptual ideas that I might read about, you know, speaking about baseball specifically. You know, I might come across something on a blog like Fangraphs or Baseball Prospectus and, and kind of fleshing it out with reporting in clubhouses and asking baseball people what they think about it and kind of putting it in a perspective where maybe people haven't read about it. You know, one of my favorite stories from last year, I would say, was a story that I did on the cut fastball. And, you know, I'd made, maybe read like a 300-word post on Fangraphs about how there was this statistical trend of more pitchers using the pitch with technology like pitch up, pitch FX. We can track everything now. And I kind of took that idea and ran with it, talked to a bunch of guys like Dan Heron and Roy Halliday and Mike Adams about how the pitch turned around their careers you know, met up with Halliday's former mentor and spent a morning with him uh, in Oakland, and we're out in the outfield playing catch, and he's teaching me how to throw a cut fastball in a bullpen. And I think if anyone had been clocking me, I think I was clocking in about, like, 45 miles per hour. <laughs> but anyway, you know, doing kind of – I did a lot of reporting for that, and that came from this one small idea, and it turned into a 3,000-word, six-page story that I ran last summer. And I think – those are the kind of stories that I'm really excited, you know, about doing. Kind of stories that um, start from this small idea and can really kind of broaden in a way that other people haven't done before. You know, I went. I've been reading some of your stuff uh, this week, just kind of preparing for this. And um, I read the article that you wrote in 2008, the cover story on Josh Hamilton. And Hamilton it fascinates me. I, I, I root for Hamilton. He's, he, I think he's a guy that a lot. I think anyone could can root for, and and he's he's someone who has had a lot of difficulties, and and hopefully he's he's changed them around. And Kemp is is the same. And I think baseball, maybe two or three years ago, was kind of it's kind of stale a little bit. But I I think in the last twelve months, with the emergence of Strasburg and Harper and guys like. Hosmer and Kemp and Trout and Hamilton. I, I feel like the Major League Baseball is becoming more and more appointment TV. That the star power it has increased. It almost reminds me like it's getting to a point where the NBA was in the Dream Team era. Where maybe not to that level, but there's guys with that kind of potential. And, and it feels like it just feels like the game has a lot more guys who are appointment television. Would you agree or disagree with that? Maybe are some guys I left off that that really get you going, and um, maybe some opinions on Hamilton. Um, I I agree, but I'm probably like the worst person to ask this, or anyone who is like on the beat and kind of following this on a regular or semi regular basis. I mean, we have absolutely no perspective on on like what people are following and and what sort of interest areas on kind of a na- you know national scale. I mean, obviously, I think like the sense within the game is that, you know, baseball is very much still chasing the NFL as the most popular sport of the game. But in terms of within, um, within the game, I think it is very much um, a very, really exciting time. And I think, I think, like you mentioned, I mean, a lot of it is because of this fascination with phenoms, which you know, goes back as far as this game has been around for. But I think you have this tremendous influx of just really amazing young talent. And, uh, you know, we just have this kind of fascination with phenoms. And, and like you said, Strasburg, you know, I did a, 
I, you know, I did a cover story on him, I think, two years ago, and, you know, the, the, uh, just the phenomenon was just really stunning to me. I mean, I, I think my, I got, I got a call on like a, uh, I think he debuted on a Wednesday, and I got a call on like a Friday. Uh, I think his first two starts were on the road, and I was sent out to Cleveland to cover a game on, on Sunday, and, you know, I went out to Cleveland, and they, I think they had like a makeshift stand out there with just like Strasburg paraphernalia, <laughs> and this was in Cleveland, you know, no, I mean, like Cleveland is drawing nobody right now, even though they're like, they, they were good last year and for, you know, three-fourths of the season, and they've been, they've been near a first-place team this year, like they've been really struggling in attendance, and yet that, that game in Cleveland, I mean, there was just tremendous buzz, um, so, uh, you know, you just have a lot of, a lot of really good buzz over these phenoms, and and guys who are coming in, uh, like a Darvish, just like this intrigue around them. And I think, you know, we'll see what happens this year. I mean, you know, the the, the playoffs last year, certainly, you know, you couldn't have scripted a better playoff scenario and the way the season ended. So, you know, I think the extra wild card is going to help a lot. I mean, you look at the teams that are still competitive. I mean, I know it's still early in the season, but I just have a feeling that, you know, no one really knows how this is going to play out with the extra wild card spot, but I think that just a lot more interest, a lot more people are going to be interested, you know, in August and September. And, and it's not just because their fantasy teams are still in contention. You wrote on .com uh, just recently, uh, came out Tuesday, May 22nd, about Byron Buxton. Uh, and he was drafted second overall today by the Twins, the day we're recording this interview on Tuesday. Uh, were you surprised with uh, the draft pick second overall? Was that about what you thought? And what did you learn about Buxton doing the story? Yeah, I mean, this was, um, you know, I wasn't surprised that he went second. I figured that. I think most people in the industry and talking to people expected him to either go first to Houston, who was picking first, or second to Minnesota, who was, uh, you know, picking second. So I think the surprise in the draft yesterday was that, or in the first round yesterday, was that, you know, the shortstop from Puerto Rico went first. Right. A lot of people were expecting uh, the pitcher from Stanford, um, Appel, to go first. Potentially, Buxton is, you know, the guy that would be sort of the surprise pick there. So, you know, I think all along I knew Minnesota was going to take Buxton, if he was going to be available um, second, and I think the general consensus and the reason why I wanted to write that story for um, our website was that Buxton is really kind of just talking to people. I mean, he's really the most intriguing talent out there. I mean, people were kind of throwing around these crazy comparisons to Bo Jackson and <laughs> and Eric Davis and Matt Camp, and I, I was like, well, I haven't read anything really too much about this guy. I mean, they're Baseball America did a really nice piece, and MLB.com had too, but, you know, nothing really, like, too expansive or in-depth about him, and that's kind of why I wanted to do the piece, and there were some just tremendous stories, and a lot of it is, a lot of it is, um, you know, appeals from Stanford, so a lot of people are kind of, you know, it's obviously a more high-profile place. He's in college, in a high-profile college. You know, Buxton's from out of, you know, in the middle of nowhere, Georgia, where it's practically, you know, impossible to get to unless you have an entire day to travel there. So uh, made a bunch of phone calls, talked to his coaches, and they were really just like, 
you know, more than accommodating and happy to share some really incredible stories about how he's, you know, I talked to some scouts and he's one of the fastest prospects um, really in the history of the game. I mean, you know, going from, he's a right-handed hitter, going from home plate to first base, uh, one scout timed him and, and told the coaches down in um, Georgia that uh, it was the fastest recorded time since Bo Jackson. Um, you get a lot of like these stories how um, he scored on a sacrifice fly from second base uh, because of his ridiculous speed. He's also this amazing pitcher who has been clocked in the high 90s, and if he wanted to commit himself to being a pitcher, which he isn't, um, he would be potentially a first-round pick. So, yeah, so the Twins got, not, in a nutshell, the Twins got a really good player in Byron Buxton. You know, uh, we had Tom Verducci on a few weeks ago, and it was before your article about Kemp came out. And I, I just asked him, you know, I, Kemp, and this was before his injuries, which have been a little bit frustrating. He's not on the DL, off the DL for a day or two, back on the DL with the hamstring injury. But when you look at him, someone playing in a huge market like Los Angeles for the Dodgers, his team is owned by Magic Johnson now. And he's an African-American baseball player, and there's no secret that baseball has struggled to to recruit the African-American athlete to play baseball. They've had a lot of troubles in the inner cities the last couple of years. What do you think about the potential? You've had a chance to talk to Kemp. You think this is a guy who could potentially change baseball in the inner cities? And, I mean, he's got such a great smile. I mean, he's, he's, he's in the perfect market, and he's a great player. He's exciting to watch. I don't know. What is your opinion about Kemp and maybe yeah. the impact he can have there? No, I mean, I think that's definitely something he's fully aware of. I mean, I um, kind of spent a morning with him at his house, um, and you know, we talked about a bunch of different things. And one of the things we talked about was kind of how he was growing up, and he was a, he's you know a really good basketball player. He you know really that was kind of his first love. I mean, he had posters of, you know, Vince Carter and Michael Jordan in his room growing up and, and he wanted to be a basketball player. I mean, there's no, <laughs> no doubt about that. Like all his heroes were basketball players. And we got into this interesting conversation about how uh, in baseball, I mean, they're just, for him, they're just, you know, you grew up in Oklahoma, around the Oklahoma city area and they just weren't that many African Americans in baseball for him to look up to. And, you know, he loved Frank Thomas. Uh, you know, he wore 35 as kind of, you know, purely because Frank Thomas did, and he was a Ken Griffey Jr. fan, as pretty much everyone was. But beyond that, I mean, there weren't really any role models for him. And, um, you know, baseball was something that he didn't really take very seriously until his junior year just because he wanted to be a basketball player. And, uh, you know, he just kind of realized that baseball was the sport that he was uh, good at and the, where he would make the most money with. And, you know, he obviously made the right decision. But, he's, you know, he talked about how he very much kind of feels a camaraderie with, you know, guys like Prince Fielder, who, you know, African-Americans in the game. And he, he very much is aware of the fact that, you know, for kids, maybe, you know, he and he's involved with the community there in L.A. and Oklahoma City. I mean, a lot of the stuff isn't publicized, but, you know, he does a really great job of visiting schools and doing clinics with with youngsters in, in, in both areas. So he's, um, 
he's very much aware of that fact. Whether you know he's the guy who's going to change everything, I think it's kind of a slow process. So we'll have to see about that. You know, it's interesting that you said that basketball is his first love because actually Dave Justice told us the same thing when he was growing up in Cincinnati. He wanted to play play basketball. It just so happened that you know baseball was where he could make a career of it. So he ended up transitioning. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting spot for baseball. And as you said, it, it is a slow process for baseball to, to try to grab that. It's like football has gotten so big and so much of our attention is there that it's going to take baseball time to kind of, kind of, they got to kind of slowly rake these little pots. You know what I mean? Like uh, as a poker analogy, just kind of win these little hands, win these little hands and kind of build up their stack, so to speak. Yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of it, quite honestly, is probably, like, gambling-oriented. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, fantasy football has become such a, a massive thing. I mean, you know, it's and, – and gambling on football games. I mean, baseball is simply not going to be able to compete in that arena. Um, you know, no one's rushing to Vegas to bet on, you know, the Mariners-Rangers game. You know, like, but I, I feel like a lot of it is, um, you know, the interest generated from, from that arena. And I think baseball realized that. So they're looking at different avenues to kind of, you know, drum up interest, you know, whether it's kind of making the draft a bigger deal or, you know, they're really making a bigger effort in trying to globalize the game. Um, you know, and, and you know, I, I know that, you know, obviously teams are, are scouting a lot more heavily internationally, but I think, Major League Baseball is trying to, you know, they realize that, hey, this is a sport that can expand in countries like, you know, China and out in Europe. So they're exploring different avenues uh, to really kind of, really kind of make this, you know, sport really global. And the first pick in the draft yesterday was uh, a kid from Puerto Rico. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, you know, going forward, I think teams, uh, teams realize that that sort of kind of, you know, they're not, they're not really saying this um, on the record, but I talked to a lot of front offices about how, you know, everyone's trying to talk about in this age of Moneyball the next inefficiency and where teams can get an advantage. And I, I know for a fact that teams kind of really are identifying the global market and finding kids, you know, where, whether it's in Latin America or in China, there's a huge discrepancy and how much teams are spending internationally where I think teams are really recognizing that, or at least some teams and the smarter teams are recognizing that the fact that there's a lot of talent, you know, across the globe. And if we invest money on that, uh, in that Avenue, and I think, you know, starting Darvish to that massive deal, the Rangers spent a ton of money, you know, on scouting. And obviously they spent a ton of money to, to sign him and the A's, did the same thing with Suspetus. Um, you know, and, and I think the early returns are that they did a smart, smart thing uh, in signing him to uh, a deal that at the time seemed like an overpay for a guy from Cuba. But they did their research, and I think teams are kind of realizing that, um, look, this is an inefficiency. I mean, there are a lot of players, uh, you know, outside of the U.S. As we get into this, get closer and closer to the all-star break here and the kind of the cream rises to the top and it gets a little bit more clear who the contenders are, what, what 
what stories are you going to be interested in following? What what do you want to know more about as the baseball season progresses here? Well, I mean, in terms of teams, I mean, I really think that it's it's still like too early to kind of draw any conclusions to what's happened. I mean, we're still at a point of the season where a six-game win streak or a losing streak could put you in first place or last place. I mean, you know, just like a week ago, everyone had written off the Red Sox, and they're, what are they, like three games out, and, you know, the Orioles have gone like two and ten over the last, two and eight over the last ten or something like that. So the White Sox are in first place in the AL Central, and the the Tigers, who I think everyone takes to win the division, is, is uh, you know, they're in like third. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just way too early, I mean, to really kind of like, like um, find you know too much in these early trends or anything. So what I'm going to be interested in, um, you know, I'll be honest. I mean, I think that teams, front offices that are you know GMs and executives that I've talked to, are that they really have. I mean, this this extra wild card spot is like such a game changer. I mean, it's especially like you mix in the parity in the game. And the extra spot, I mean, everyone's kind of just, like, waiting to see what happens in terms of, like, the trade deadline. I mean, you know, it's – I was just talking to, uh, like, a GM the other day, and he said that, the, you know, between the parity and the extra wild card spot, you're going to see more buyers than ever at the trade deadline. And, and the few sellers that are out there, I mean, you can easily, you know, just look at the standards and you can identify who they are. They're going to be able to command – high prices for the chips. So I think the next big thing is a trade deadline, what kind of movement we're going to see there. We may not see very much, or we may see teams kind of mortgaging their future. I think that's going to be really interesting. I and mean, in terms of, like, specific teams and, you know, how well they're doing, I think the White Sox are really interesting because they have Robin Ventura, um, you know, managing their team. And a lot of people were just absolutely stunned by that managerial hire and, Look, they're in first place right now. I mean, Kenny Williams <laughs> looks like a genius right now. The Angels, I think, you know, a lot of people are writing them off. They're really interesting because they spend so much money on Pujols and, and Wilson, and, and they made no, you know, they, they, it's obvious that they're all in this year, and, you know, they're kind of really, you know, they're 500 teams, so we'll see what happens. The Tigers, I think, are fascinating because of how much they pay for Prince and you know I never thought that they were a great team. I just thought that they were a pretty good team in a bad division. But it looks like the White Sox and Indians are going to have a lot to say in that. And I think uh, the AL East is the most interesting division, as it usually is. But I think this year, I mean, you look at the five teams. You can probably, I mean, as much as the Orioles have been kind of the story early on, I think you can kind of um, you know say that it's really long-term, it's going to be a four-team race and a really good four-team race. And I think the Red Sox are going to be right in there. And the Blue Jays, everyone that I talked to this spring agrees that the Blue Jays are going to be juggernauts for years to come. And the Rays are always the most interesting team in baseball. So a lot to, uh, yeah, a lot to digest, a lot to uh, look forward to in the, in the second half. You know, last thing on baseball real quick, Johan Santana pitched the first no-hitter for the Mets a couple nights ago. Uh, we almost had a no-hitter in Oakland last night, got all the way to the eighth inning. There was two others this year. 
I think this could be a year kind of like, I think it was maybe 1990 or 91 where there's like six or seven no hitters. You think this could be a year where it's kind of the, just the year of the pitcher and we just almost every week we have somebody at least flirting with a no hitter. Well, I mean, I, I think this is just a really, honestly, it's just a continuation of this trend that started, I would say two years ago, um, with, I mean, you had drastic, if you look at the, you know, you look at the numbers, I mean, you had pretty drastic um, turns in terms of, you know, home run leaders and how many guys finished with 35, 40 home runs and how kind of the balance of power shifted to the pitcher. You know, a lot of people were kind of hailing 2010 as the year of the pitcher, and then last year was year of the pitcher, too, and this year, you know, who knows what, what kind of sequel they're going to come right. up with. I don't know, like the Avengers of the Year of the Pitchers. <laughs> I don't know. Like, but I, it's just um, it's a continuation of a trend. I mean, I think, you know, whether that's PEDs and um, better, you know, pitch, and a lot, of, a, lot of, uh, a lot of guys just think that it's just like better young pitching talent and a better understanding of how to keep your pitchers healthy. So um, I think it's just a continuation of trend. I think we saw, we've seen a lot of no-hitters and, uh, over the past two years, and I, you know, if there's a no-hitter tonight or tomorrow, I don't think I would be too surprised about it. I mean, you had some unlikely, you know, that was Braden through a perfect game. Yep. Anything can happen. I think the balance of power has just shifted to the pitcher. And I think this is um, this is a trend that's just going to continue to happen. The sportscasters are finishing up here with Albert Chen from Sports Illustrated, SportsIllustrated.com. Got to ask you, why aren't you on Twitter? <laughs> um, Twitter and I are kind of on a long-term break right now. I don't. Know, I was on uh, for a time briefly at the beginning, then went off, and you know, instantly felt healthier and felt a better, better balance in my life. I don't know. A little less crazy. I suspect I'll be going back on soon, so uh, I can stop uh, getting this question. But it's obviously <laughs> not going anywhere. I think obviously it's becoming kind of a requirement for any uh, writer in the industry. So, um, you know, I do like being kind of, I do like being somewhat, you know, kind of distanced from all the noise, but I, I don't think realistically that's going to last much longer. So, uh yeah, you you heard it here. I, I'm I'll be back on soon enough. <laughs> we uh, this is the last thing we kind of we mentioned. We really dug your piece on Hosmer and Kemp. Uh, what you what what are you working on? What can we look forward to here in the next coming weeks? Um, I am working on a um, Mike Stan or Giancarlo Stan or whatever his name is today uh, story for uh, the website that's going to run. Uh, either tomorrow or the next day. Um, I mean, he had a phenomenal month, and the Marlins are obviously, uh, you know, a team to be reckoned with. So um, I talked to a bunch of his um, kind of like guys who mentored him through the years, and he's kind of an interesting case, just like Kemp. He was sort of, you know, a multi-sport star who really got a, kind of got a late start in baseball, and He's really, I mean, he's only 22 years old, and he, you know, he's on pace for a, a monster season. So, um, you know, a lot of great stories about him in high school and, and, and through the minors. And, uh, you know, he had 13 home runs in May. So uh, you can look out for that, which uh, should be on SI.com on Thursday, I think. 
we really appreciate you doing this, and uh, we look forward to doing it again sometime. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. All right. We have to thank Albert Chen for making his first appearance on the Sportscasters. Had a lot of fun with that. We've been uh, working on getting Albert on the show for a while now. Glad that that uh, finally came through. Quick book club update. Um, obviously, last month, during the month of May, the book club updates each month was this seemingly ongoing dialogue of me listing 30 books. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a, a a long month, but Don and I talked about it, and we figured you know, for the next few summer months we would get back to just having one specific book for the book club. And we have the next couple of months mapped out. And I, I kind of mentioned it last week, but officially the book club book of the month for June is the last natural Bryce Harper's big gamble in Sim city and the greatest amateur season ever. And that book is by Rob Meach, who is a writer in Las Vegas. And I've been talking to him back and forth the last couple of, well, really the last week or so, and he, he's really excited that his book is part of the book club. He's excited to come on. And he sent me a, a PDF file of the book, which uh, I have strict orders to make sure it doesn't leak. You know, or that could be oh, really? really bad for the book, I suppose, <laughs> if there is a PDF copy of it floating out there. But it was kind of him to trust me like that. And I've been reading the book, and I'm fascinated by Bryce Harper. I think. I really I think he's appointment TV. Anytime I get the chance to watch him bat or throw the ball or catch the ball, everything he does is really exciting. And I think, as we talked about with Albert, it's really big for baseball to have some players like that now that you know draw us to the television to watch because it had gotten stale, I think, a bit the last few seasons. But uh, steroids didn't help that whole no. deal either. Uh, but um, again, the book is called The Last Natural: Bryce Harper's Big Gamble in Sin City. And the greatest amateur season ever. We'll take the next couple of weeks to read that, and then we will uh, we will switch. We'll we'll have Rob on the show at the end of the month, and then in July, our book club book of the month is going to be Dream Team, a book about the very first U.S. basketball team that went hmm. to the Olympics with Jordan and Barkley and all right, those guys right. and Christian Leitner who uh, was kind of the college star they threw at the end of the bench. <laughs> uh, but uh, So that's where we're going to go for the book club in the next couple of weeks. Also, don't forget that Don and I in the next couple of days are going to pick out the names of the winners for the contest. This is your last chance. Send them in. We'll Send cut it off on Friday, whatever emails we, we have. Uh, well, maybe we'll do Monday. We'll do next Monday as the cutoff day, and then we'll – either announce the winners or announce that we pick the winners on next week's show. But like we said, we have an autographed book, uh, autographed Death to the BCS, uh, from, autographed by Jeff Passan to give away. We have the uh, a copy of Sweetness and a bunch of other books. And if you want to details of which books they are, you can listen to the last couple podcasts. I went through each of them in detail. But we have Chris Ballard's book, Mark Graham Jr.'s book, uh, a copy of Those Guys Have All the Fun. We have a copy of Mark Titus's book. So a bunch of stuff to give out in conjunction with this podcast and Father's Day. And if you're interested in winning, email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. We already have more emails than books, so not everyone who emailed is, is going to win, but I guess that's what a contest is. But, uh, again, the book is The Last Natural, Bryce Harper's Big Gamble in Sin City and the Greatest Amateur Season Ever. 
And uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and interview Jeff Perlman, the author of the book club, Book of the Month, Book of the Year, Sweetness. Our next guest is from Mayo Pack, New York, and is a graduate of the University of Delaware. After college, he started his career in journalism, writing about food and fashion in Nashville. In 1996, he was hired by Sports Illustrated, where he spent seven years writing mostly about baseball. He authored the infamous John Rocker piece that ran in the magazine in 1999. After SI, he spent two years writing for Newsday, but left to focus on writing books. He has written several books that have appeared on the New York Times bestseller list, including his biography about the 1986 Mets called The Bad Guys Won. He's also written books about Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and the 1990s Dallas Cowboys. His latest book, Sweetness, explores the days of an amazing, mysterious, and misunderstood football icon, and is this year's book club, book of the month, book of the year. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented and engaging Jeff Perlman. How you doing today, Jeff? I'm good, thank you. We're excited to have you on. I mean, I, I'm sure you, you've had many accolades over the years, you know, being on the New York Times bestseller list jumps out, and I'm sure you've won awards. But honestly, where does your book being named the Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Month, Book of the Year rank in those awards? I'm sure near the top. I would say, I mean, I probably, uh, let me think, birth of my kids is very high. Day I got married, you know, very high. Right. I would say, uh, you know, number three, probably number three. Number three, that's great. I mean, we really appreciate it. But in all honesty, I mean, we love the book. Uh, That's really what it comes down to. You know, we've read a a, a ton of sports books this year. It's it's something we do here, and uh, we just really love the book. And I want to ask you a couple questions that maybe I, I didn't ask you when we talked about it initially, or I'm just curious to see if the answer maybe changed and and the okay. first the first thing is is that you know the book the book had a lot of buzz um some people criticized it for exposing things about Walter Payton that some people viewed as you know just weren't necessary uh you know some people maybe i think Mike Dicko was one person who who maybe talked out about it but um looking back on it do you think that you wrote a fair book Oh yeah, I really do. I, that's one thing I always, uh, I always tell. I, I, I just wanted people to read it. You know, that was the main. I'm sure I said this at the time. My main criticism, or the thing that hurt me when I was getting ripped, is that I'd say 99% of the people, maybe 100% of the people tearing me apart, hadn't read the book. They'd either read the excerpt in SI, had heard about the excerpt in SI, or just heard that Mike Dicka wanted to spit on me. And of course, Mike Dicka hadn't read the book, so. I always said, like, if you give a book a chance, you'll see. Um, and I, uh, the number of responses I've gotten sort of in the ensuing months uh, has been pretty, it's, it's, it's definitely, like, uh, reaffirmed something in me. I mean, where, you know, like actual apologies from people saying, I jumped the gun, um, I should have read the book, you were right, it wasn't what we all thought it was. So uh, I feel like I've been, vindicated is too strong of a word, but I feel like uh, it's been acknowledged that, what people initially thought wasn't wasn't really accurate. Given another opportunity, and maybe it really wasn't even your decision at all, but 
uh, given the process were to play out again, would you try to get a different excerpt in SI, or do you think the one that ran was the right excerpt? Uh, I mean, that's an interesting question. I, I guess, I mean, it's actually really, it's a difficult question. I, I, I know people usually, when they do shows like this, they have like kind of smooth responses. I don't, <laughs> I don't really know. Because on the one hand, it's like, uh, it did get a lot of buzz, and it was a real... Like, I thought it was interesting, too. I thought that part of his life was fascinating. And, and I certainly don't apologize for writing truthfully about the pain that a retired athlete went through. Um, on the other hand, from a sort of uh, sales standpoint, I think it really took its toll in Chicago. And I think a lot of people decided right then and there they were not going to buy that book. So if you put a gun to my head and said, would you pick a different excerpt, I think I probably would. You know, I think one reason, maybe one reason that people who I think knew of you as an author might have been skeptical is because if you look at the the history of books that you've written, you've authored a bunch of books about some infamous people or teams. And then I think the topic of Walter Payton maybe came out of uh, right field for some people. You know, here's a guy who's written about Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds and, you know, a book called The Bad Guys Won. Why did you choose Walter Payton as that? That, that next book? Well, in a way, I, I, I thought, like, uh, the thing is this, like, the, the truth of the matter is, like you said in your introduction, the infamous John Rocker uh, story, and, like, you know, I've never been able to shed that, ever. You know, that reputation as a guy who wrote the Rocker story has hung on me for a long time. And I, I, I don't, I would have written the exact same story today. I'm not, I'm not upset about that. But I feel like it's been, it's, it's been hard to shape. So, the Rocker story comes out, and then, you know, for a while, any story I wrote for SI, it'd be, oh, well, this was also written by the Rocker guy. So if there was anything right. even remotely negative or controversial, that it'd be, oh, well, this is the Rocker guy. And then I write a book about the 86 Mets. And it wasn't a controversial book. And I think if you talk to most Mets fans, they love that book. And I think if you talk to most guys from that team, they like slash love that book. I don't know if they love it, but I think they like it and, and believe in it and believe in what, what I wrote about. But I think, like, it's always been, everything I've done has been sort of um, colored by the rocker story and, and the people who thought it wasn't fair or wasn't right or, or just decided I was this controversial guy for doing it. Um, so I, I wrote about Peyton, number one, because I was fascinated by Walter Peyton, number two, because I felt there was never really a good biography done on him, and, and number three, because I, I thought, you know, there was, there was, he was like a mysterious figure. It, it, it's like... We know a lot about him, yet we know nothing about him. You know, so I thought he would be great. And I was excited to write about a guy who wasn't quote-unquote controversial, you know, who wasn't, didn't come with any strings attached. There was no steroid scandal with, with uh, Walter Payton. Um, there were no stories about him, uh, you know, getting wasted and throwing up on a team airplane. There was, there was none of that. So that was definitely appealing to me. You know, you mentioned the Mets book, and uh, I was thinking about it. I, I had just finished reading the Mets book, When Gary Carter Passed Away. And I know in the book, I don't want to say you were critical of Carter because I don't think that's true. But you pointed out a lot of the things that maybe other people didn't like about Carter. You know, uh, for example, how he never met a camera he didn't like and things like that. And then when someone passes away, you know, we all rush to 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 just honor them by, by saying all the great things. And I wonder... Sure. I wonder, did you feel like you were in an awkward spot after that happened? Like, did you want to? Did you wish you could go back and maybe 
you know, just because he died, did it make you want to like sugarcoat it a little bit, or are you glad that there's a, that honest assessment of the team and and Gary Carter's role in it out there? Uh, that's an interesting question. I actually, uh, you know, that it's funny. Like, I would say that Meth book is by far my most popular book. It actually wasn't my biggest seller. My biggest seller was the Cowboy book, then the Peyton book, then the Meth book. But I think it was it it was it's the most like. You know, I've had tons of Mets fans who tell me about that book, and they've read it three times and four times. I'm not saying it's like a great book. I'm saying but I've, it's got a lot of passion for Mets fans. Um, but the truth of the matter is, it's like, it's not my favorite of the books I wrote. I feel like it was my first book I'd ever written. There's way too many adjectives and too many kind of stupid jokes. And, you know, I like the book, but if, but if I could have another shot at it, there are a few things I would change. And, and this has nothing to do with Carter dying. But I think I was too hard on Carter in that book. I think, like, it, was not, it wasn't like I put my own opinions in there. But, but I think, like, you know, it got to the point where sort of the depiction of him was a little too much. And, you know, you know that the whole idea that he was, like, sort of this nerdy guy who was just too good to be true, like, I painted that, and I probably painted it again a little too much. You know, like, I went back to it a few times. Where if I were now at age 40 as opposed to, I don't know, 29 when I wrote it, um, I don't think I would layer it on as much as I did, to be totally honest. So it has nothing to do with him, his passing, uh, which is obviously really sad. It just has to do with being, uh, I think, a more mature human being. You know, being the guy who wrote the Mets book, quote-unquote, did you have any special interest or thoughts when Santana pitched the first no-hitter in, in Mets history? Well, it has nothing to do with the book. It has to do with being a, a New Yorker, and someone who, like, has enjoyed the Mets over the years. You know, I don't call myself a fan, because I haven't been rooted for teams in a long time, just because it's not really right being a writer uh, who covers this stuff. But, I, you know, I mean, I, it was exciting, and it was kind of thrilling, and it, I think it was much more meaningful than had it been a Yankee, um, not because I have anything against the Yankees, just because they have so much history, you know, to go by. So just being here in New York and seeing it happen, and, and you know, it was... Yeah, it was euphoric, and it was great, and it's so happy. I was so happy for Mets fans who really need this stuff and have been denied it over the years. So I had nothing to do with the book, though. I just thought it was really cool. You know, I wanted to ask a New Yorker this because it was brought up during the post game. Santana is a New Yorker himself. Was it kind of cool that a New Yorker would be the one who would finally get the no hitter? I don't think anyone cared. <laughs> I just think it was so having someone with a net hat the no hitter. I mean, it's like it's really interesting. Like, you know, it's like uh, there's some things that stick and some things that don't when it comes to baseball. Like, you know, people never talk about like, you know, like Derek Jeter was the first guy I guess to get three thousand hits all the Yankees. Well, nobody ever discussed that before. It wasn't like, oh my God, we've never had a guy get three thousand hits in all these years of Yankee baseball. Um, you know, like. You know, they're just something sticks and something don't. And the Mets never having a no hitter really stuck. And it was really sort of something every Mets fan was aware of. And I wouldn't say people were ashamed of it, but it was really, it was there. And it kind of hung there. And when you had Nolan Ryan and Tom Seaver and Dwight Gooden and Tom Glavin and, you know, all these, they've had a lot of elite pitchers. And for it never to have been done, and then to have guys do it in other teams. Right. I think Seaver did it as a Red. Nolan Ryan obviously did it. Dwight Gooden did it as a Yankee. Um, I think for it to finally happen was, was pretty pretty uh, euphoric. The Sportscasters are here with Jeff Perlman. You can find it on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman. We're talking about 
a lot of things, but especially his book Sweetness, which is the book club book of the year. I wonder, the uh, paperback version of Sweetness is coming out this summer. And I just wonder, kind of what are your goals and, and object- objectives for the paperback book? Uh, are there some things that you're looking forward to the opportunity to change or adjust? There's something you want to add? What is it you want to accomplish with the, uh, with the paperback version? <laughs> I just want it to do well. Just I, mean, I, I, I did, you know, originally, this is interesting, actually. Like, uh, originally they wanted me to, um, they wanted me to add a, uh, another chapter to the end, like a sort of update. And, you know, obviously Walter Payton has been deceased for a long time. There's no real, there's no new news about Walter Payton. And the only thing I could write about was the, the reaction uh, in Chicago. And I was going to. I was going to write a, uh, a chapter about the, you know, I was angry. There were a lot of, there was a lot of anger uh, in me after that book came out. And I felt like I was, I was really given an unfair shake by some, some people in Chicago, some media members in particular, who, who slammed me without having read the book. And I was, I was angry um, and upset and frustrated, and I was, I was ready to write that. And then I kind of realized, nobody wants to hear me whine about how I was treated in Chicago. <laughs> you know, like, my wife doesn't even hear, want to hear me whine about how I was treated in Chicago. You know, and, and the truth of the matter is, they had, they had a right to read the excerpt and write whatever they wanted to. I mean, that excerpt was put out there. They had a right to have their take on it. Um, and I sort of decided not to add a new chapter. There was nothing new about Walter Payton. Um, and a book that I put that much time and that much energy and that much heart into didn't need to be sort of sullied uh, by a self-indulgent, you know, chapter about me and how, you know, boo-hoo, poor Jeff Perlman wasn't treated right. So I just want, I, I hope people in Chicago give it a shot just because I, I believe in that book and, and I really came to love Walter Payton. And, and I think if, if people read the book, they'll see it was not a, a slam job on that, on that man at all. If, if anything, it was, I think it was more of a love letter. You know, you talk a little bit in the book about Peyton, Peyton's health after his career and kind of some of the effects that playing the game had on him. And that's an issue that's really just busted into the pages of our newspapers and onto our TVs with the fights that the older players have had with the league, with the tragic passing yep. of Junior Seau. Do you think that some of what you've written that was maybe criticized has been... Dog. <laughs> dog. Dog. Well, I didn't hear that last part. I apologize. No, that's that's okay. Not the first dog to be on the show. Uh, uh, Jane yeah. uh, Jane Levy's dog is quite often on the show when we have Jane on. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. my dog is named Norma. She will kick Jane Levy's dog's ass. Yeah. Sure. Well, my dog is named Colston. He would kick both your dogs' ass. Ah, nice. Well, actually, <laughs> he, he only weighs seven pounds, so he'd probably be the underdog in most fights. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. I I was just wondering if. Um, kind of the way uh, this off season in the National Football League has played out, and the way uh, the way that these athletes suffer after their playing career, the way that that's being magnified. If you think that that might change some people's opinion now, if they were reading the excerpt or reading part of the book for the first time. Well, that's a good question. I uh, it's interesting. Like one of the criticisms I got from one of the writers in Chicago was that I didn't directly uh, sort of equate uh, Walter Payton's problems at the end of his life, uh, mainly the depression and the suicidal thoughts, with uh, head injuries. And the reason I didn't make that equation is because I, I didn't have the authority to make it. You know, I, no one ever examines his brain. Um, 
no doctor had ever sort of diagnosed that. So, so I didn't feel comfortable doing that myself, you know, as playing sort of couch psychiatrist. Um, that being said, I, I mean, I, it certainly crossed my mind a lot since, uh, since everything, especially with Junior Seau. I mean, I, I'm sure a couple, a couple, whatever minutes, hours after hearing about Junior Seau, I thought about Walter Payton um, and how depressed he was and how much of a beating he took. Similarly to Junior Seau, you know, uh, he just like Seau, he was a guy who took a took a took a beating but refused to sort of not play uh, or even show his pain and would be, you know, would would be given painkillers on the sideline and wouldn't let anyone else see it because he didn't want anyone to detect his weakness. Um, so I don't know, you know, I hope there's no, I'm not looking to make sort of extra money off of the pain of, of NFL players. So I'm, I'm not hoping that all of a sudden people say, oh, this is an interesting book because someone, someone, someone died. But, but I, but I do think, uh, I do think you have to, when you look at Walter Payton's life, it's hard not to think that there, there probably was some tie. I mean, I, I, I can't diagnose it, but it's hard not to think that there wasn't some tie between the beating he took on the football field uh, and the, what he went through, the anguish he went through after he was uh, done playing. You know, I, I thought that uh, I thought you did a great job on the NFL Network's The Football Life about Walter Payton. Did you enjoy doing that? And uh, how do you think that maybe helped the book, if at all? I don't know if it helped the book or not, but I will say uh, I did. That was kind of thrilling. Like, uh, we're all supposed to be, like, cool and, and whatever, and I've been doing this for a long time, so I'm supposed to say, oh, they're all the same. But, like... Uh, I remember the interview was uh, was fine. It was at my house, and it was 45 minutes, and the book had yet to come out um, when I did it, so I, I didn't know what was coming as far as the book. But the interview wasn't that memorable. But I remember the night uh, the show came on, and uh, it was right after the book came out. And I didn't know anything about it, but uh, you know, I, I was excited because I devoted three years of my life to Walter Payton, and I wanted to see, and I knew I was going to be in it, and I was curious. And the show opens, and the voice at the beginning of the show is mine. Like, it opens with an image of Walter Payton and me talking. And I have to say, that was truly, truly thrilling. Um, I think because I put so much time into this guy's life and devoted so much energy, and it was all I would think about. I mean, for, you know, two and a half years, I think about my kids and my wife and Walter Payton, you know? And so there was something about that. It was almost like a, a verification uh, in some way that this guy knows what he's talking about. So it was pretty cool. I don't know if it sold me a book. It doesn't really matter. It was just kind of cool. You know, after I read Sweetness and had enjoyed it as much as I had, I wanted to go back and read your other books. And I think I sent you a tweet and uh, I kind of was like, you know, what should be next? And I think maybe you recommended Cow- – I think Cowboys is the second one I read and then I read the Mets one and then the Bonds one. But you had kind of said to me in the tweet, don't read the Clemens one. What went, <laughs> what went wrong with the Clemens book? It's not, yeah, there are a couple of things that went wrong. I would say, uh, it's not that I think it's a bad book. You know, I hate like, I hate like when, uh, you know, like every once in a while, like Eminem recently came out, not recently, probably a year and a half ago, came out with his last CD. And he was telling us, he told everyone that the CD before it wasn't that good. You know? And I was thinking, well, I kind of like that CD. And now I feel like an idiot. So I've got emails from people who really like the Clemens book. So it's not that I don't think it's a good book. I do. It just wasn't a fun experience for me. Um, I didn't really like Clemens. He wasn't that curious of a person. He had a really interesting sort of life, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't reflective of, at all, and he wasn't one to analyze himself. Um, and the other thing is I, had, I initially had 
I don't know, a year and a half to work on the book. And then we found out that the New York Daily News was coming out with their own Clemens book. And my Bonds book um, came out three weeks after Game of Shadows, and it was a disaster. And, you know, so you never want to be the second. You never want your book to be the second. Right. If you ever hear any publishing company putting a positive spin on being the second book out, they're lying to you. There's nothing good about it whatsoever. <laughs> so we decided to rush the book a little bit uh, and come out earlier than initially anticipated. And it was a freaking nightmare. It was like four weeks of pure hell where I was working on this book, I don't know, 15 hours, 20 hours a day. And my family went on vacation without me, and I was stuck at home. Um, so it just wasn't a very good memory, you know. And, and I felt like I wanted more time to write about the Yankees and, and those years and to delve into them more. So, so I, I'm not saying it's not a, a, a whatever, a, a solid book, but it, wasn't my, it was my least favorite experience writing. Uh, the Sportscaster is here with Jeff Perlman. Uh, you can find his blog, www.jeffperlman.com. You can also find him on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman. There's a chance, though, that as we get closer and closer to November, his Twitter feed might actually explode. Uh, so be aware of that as we get closer to the election. Jeff is, uh, likes to tweet about the, uh, about the politics. I lose, Twitter. Man, I lose followers every time I tweet about politics. <laughs> well, that's not fair. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah, your, it's just your opinion. Come on, people. Uh, what's... I know last time you were on, you didn't, you wouldn't say what your next book is. Are you any closer to review? Like, is it common knowledge yet what you're writing about for your next book? I can't do it. Not I would yet, love huh? to, but I'm so paranoid. That's the one yeah. thing I can't do. Okay, not yet. Is can we get a a sport? Yeah, basketball. It's My a first basketball. Book. First basketball book. Okay, when do you think it might be out? Well, it's due in February, so it'll probably come out. Uh, hopefully, early to middle uh, NBA season. Things going well with it. Uh, yeah, it is actually. It's fun. It's funny. I after sweetness, I really, uh, I was like really unmotivated. You know, it's like uh, Lee Mosdell, great writer. Like he once said to me that like writing a biography, it's like uh, you're basically in a cave for two years. You come out to the light for sunlight for whatever a month or so, and then you go back in your cave. Um, and I totally know what he's talking about. And you know, like. Uh, I'm not saying I'm, I'm blessed to have this job. It's great. I love writing books. I love the research. I love the writing. I love everything about it. Um, but it beats on you, and it's lonely, and it's isolating. And, uh, you know, it's just hard. And, and the Peyton book was the hardest one I've ever done. So it took me a long time after I was done, and then after this sort of backlash, and, and it, was, uh, it was hard to move on to the next book. Um, but I have, so I'm, I'm okay now. <laughs> All right. Um... Let's see, I mentioned the blog, I mentioned the Twitter. Anything else that you kind of... Oh, I know one last thing I wanted to ask you. You have a, a feature on your website where you do some kind of question and answers. Yeah. Uh, you've done it the for... The quads, man. Yeah, the, the quads. quads. And you've done it for a year now, and you're kind of debating with yourself. Should you continue? Should you not continue? And I know you've done one or two since, but ultimately, what is the future of the quads? Is it going to be with us for a while? Yeah, I, I actually... You know, it's funny. There was my Um... <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, it's good. I have like a lot of copies of Sweetness, so I actually throw them at my dog. You know, that's, that's not the market. Um, I, uh, yeah, I love, uh, I decided to keep doing it because I got this big response to it. And, uh, it's one of my favorite things I do. I just done over email, but I, you know, random, you know, whatever, the star of Chicago, the musical, you know, Sean Green last week, uh, Jamel Hill, Tommy Shaw, the guitarist from Sticks. You know, I, I sort of love doing these random Q&As and throwing, like, kind of, uh, 
you know, oddball questions at these people. So, yeah, it's been a joy for me. I, 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 it, it means a lot to me, actually. So, you know, my website, jeffperlman.com, I put a new one up every Thursday. And actually, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy them. It's been fun. Do you take requests? I do, as long as, like, you know, as long as it's not like, you know, Barack Obama or Mitt Romney, someone realistic. Right. I, get. I do. I have, you a, have a request. I have a couple. Okay, so, so the first one I thought of is a surviving member of the A-team. So, Are you talking I, about like Mr. T? Yeah, well, yeah, Mr. T or Dwight uh, Benedict or or no, is it Dirk Benedict and Dwight Schultz. Those are the three guys that are alive. Uh, well, we know uh, George Papard has passed. Right? Yeah, George Papard right. is dead. So, you know. I like, hey, I love the A-team. Mr. T might be hard to get. You know, Mr. T still has some uh, still has some still juice. has something going for him. He and he might try to he might try to um, extort you, you know what I mean? Or beat I, me up. Yeah, or, or beat me up. you up. But that was inspired by your uh, by your um, your Twitter picture there. Your oh, uh, uh, you're right. Yeah, uh, I Lewis thought. Asked me for money. Yeah. yeah, I thought maybe you should get um, a surviving member of the A team. And then uh, another one I thought of was uh, Sid Bream because you wrote the Bonds book, and uh, I thought it would be cool to to for you to ask Sid if he you know going around uh, the third base at about 2.1 miles per hour if he thought he was dead uh, or not. Well, that's more realistic because I have a Sid Bream phone number. All right. I'll, uh, I will make an effort on, uh, on your behalf to get uh, Sid Bream to do a quad. All right. Uh, thanks for everything, Jeff. Again, book, sweetness, book club, book of the year. We love the book. Can't recommend it enough. If you're not reading it for some reason, get rid of that reason. You'll love reading the book. It's great. Uh, at Jeff I, mean, I will tell you one more thing. I will yeah. tell you one thing. I just read a great book that hasn't come out yet. In fact, I've read two great books that haven't come out yet that I highly recommend you keep an eye on. Um, Jack McCallum has a book coming out about the, the Dream Team. Yeah, that's our Dream book club book of the month for July. Jack. Ah, it's great. Yeah, he's going to be out with book. us. Yeah, looking forward and to that. And then uh, sure. Mark Kriegel, who's a great writer and a good friend of mine, has a, uh, has a book coming out about uh, Boom Boom Mancini called The Good Son. You know, who, Boomer Mancini, yeah. who killed Dooku Kim, is a fantastic, fantastic book. And both of these are coming out soon. So, uh, And then Mike Freeman has a book about the uh, 72 Dolphins called Undefeated. It's also great. Wow. So it's going to be a very good summer slash fall for, uh, for books, for sports books. Well, that's great. We, that's right in our wheelhouse. So, and it's been, You know what was great was May. We had, uh, we had Frank DeFord on, who had his memoir come out. We had right. uh, John Smoltz on, who had his book come out. Right. We had Mark Cram Jr., who wrote finally wrote his very first book. We had him on, right. and we had uh, Chris Ballard, who wrote a really. Oh uh, yeah, Chris, great. Chris's book is great too. He's yeah. great. You know, I'll tell you something. It is a great like. I feel like, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if others feel this way, but I think they do. I feel a real kinship. There are a bunch of guys who are like, and women who are really sort of devoted to the craft of sports biography. Um, Mark Kriegel, Howard Bryant, Chris Ballard, Jane Levy. I mean. Uh, you know, just like McCallum, Lee Montville. And I think, like, uh, I think these guys are great. You know, there's no competitiveness here. I, I love these guys. And I love knowing these guys. I love riding with these guys. I just, it's like, uh, it's fantastic. And, and uh, uh, you know, just like a, it's like a little club, even if it's unspoken. I feel, I feel like it is. And, and, and I feel a real kinship with, uh, with these people. And Ballard is terrific. I mean, he's a, that's a great one. He's, he's great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this today. We really appreciate it. No problem. All right. Good luck with the rest of the book. Yep. Thank you. Bye.
All right, we have to thank uh, Jeff Perlman for being on the podcast for a second time. Really appreciate that and really enjoyed that. Uh, Jeff's a great guest. All right, um, just real quickly here, since there was not a great – well, there's no NBA guest today, and we do have an NHL guest coming up, but we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the NHL and the NBA playoffs, as we've kind of been doing here the last bunch of episodes, and kind of getting some of this in. And let's just start with the Stanley Cup. Since we were – did our last podcast. They played three games. The Kings have won them all. Two of them, they won 2-1 to one in overtime. Yep. Really good games in New Jersey. And the last night, I don't know, did you get the sense that the Devils kind of arrived there somewhat defeated? Yeah, maybe a little bit. Uh, after the first two games, which really, obviously an overtime game can go to anybody, but the Devils, uh, game one was a really slow-paced start. Like The first period is totally we're feeling each other out yeah, kind of a thing. Nothing happened. Out. And then I thought the Kings kind of took over for the second, maybe the first half of the third. And I thought the Devils actually really dominated play at the end of the third and in overtime up until the mistake. They just got caught being too aggressive. And that was it. Yeah. And really, they're going to look back at that and probably th- – I mean, this is a 3 nothing series that is a lot closer other than game three. I mean, this could easily be 2-1 Devils. Right. The Devils could have easily won the two – uh, overtime games, if they even split the two overtime games, it's just so different. It's 2-1. Right. You know, but what happened is, and we talked about this last week, is the Devils couldn't put more fuel on the Kings are unbeatable fire. But they did that. The Kings <laughs> went to New Jersey, and they added to the mystique. They won two more road games. Yep. You know, they they improved their record, their undefeated streak on the road. Arguably the Devils' best player with about seven seconds left had a point-blank shot yeah. at the end of game two that would have won Just hit it. the crossbar. Yep. It, it looks like uh, the Kings are just destined to win this thing. Yep. And, and quick, we had, what, like an 11 to 12 odds or something crazy last week? And he's going to win the Cod he, He's going to win the Cod Smythe no matter what happens unless it's something – unless the Devils win, I would say, at this point. Yeah, I'd say something historic would have to happen. Like, the Devils would have to win, like, four games in a row and someone like Parisi gets two overtime right. and, or something like that. I mean, something historic is going to have to happen to take it away. Yeah, uh, yeah, we talked a little bit – or we will talk a little bit about how quick – his numbers are great, but he hasn't necessarily been stealing it. I think he stole maybe game two a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, you know there's been maybe a game here or there where he has been the best player. I think there was a game in the Phoenix series I can recall where he kind of stole it. But he hasn't had to really, I he, suppose. They've just been that much better than everyone else. Yeah, now, it's crazy. The interesting thing is they have lost at home in game five twice. <laughs> you know, so yeah. or in game four, excuse me. So right, will right. they? Win it tomorrow? I, I don't know. Um, I kind of tend to think they did. Be, they will because, like I said, I think in to some degree, I think unfortunately the Devils went to to L.A. defeated a bit. Yeah, I mean they certainly looked that way in Game Three, and, and the Devils have had the much more difficult road to the Cup. Sure, I mean they played a double overtime game in Game Seven against Florida, Florida yep. in round one. Then they had a, a somewhat easy round five two, games. a five-gamer against Philly. But then they had a six-game battle against their rival. Yep. You know, and... The ma- Kings are, what, two games shy of perfect. So they've had quite a bit of rest. And The really, Kings have only lost the two game fives. Really, that or fours. was, that was uh, what some people thought might hurt the Kings was they had like an eight-game layover. And actually, even after game one... I think it was Greg Wyshynski or someone from the Puck Daddy blog wrote about how Quick kind of bailed out 
will look to be like a reeling Kings team. Like maybe they thought by the end of it they would just couldn't get their feet under them or something, but whatever. They turn that around and it looks like they're going to be this year's Stanley Cup champ and first time for them. So congrats, I guess, early. And in October, play the tape. Mm-hmm. I pick Sabres and Kings. Kings to win the Cup. Yeah. Now, if we if we redid that at any point, like in January, probably no doubt I bailed on the Kings. <laughs> so yeah. I'm not going to try to sound smart. I, I had a feeling I, I liked their team going into it. Um, but the way things played out, I would have bailed. If we would have redone Stanley Cup picks in January, I would have bailed on them. Yeah, looking at it now, it's, I think it's and harder. I totally whiffed on the Sabres. It's harder yeah. to figure out why the Kings were bad than it is to figure out why they're doing well. I mean, their roster is full of... I think they just didn't score. Yeah. I think they just went through a period where they just didn't score goals. Yeah, which is crazy considering and, the talent And, you know, going into the final weekend of the season, they were the three seed. Right. You know, and then they lost two games yeah, and ended up so being tight. the eighth seed. So, yep. they're sure, they're the eighth seed, but maybe they're a little bit better than the normal eighth seed based on just the parity in the league this year. And yeah. they have the, a goalie who played is playing at the, at the highest level. And uh, here they are, one game away from the Stanley Cup. Yeah, so hopefully uh, there'll be some stars in the audience or in the crowd. Well, yeah, while the cup is there, hopefully they'll have some stars in the crowd. They have had a little bit of star power. As it hasn't that. rated well. No, it's just I, I don't think it's that exciting. You don't want to see if this, like like you said earlier, you wanted to see it go six or seven games because that's good for the sport. And it just doesn't look like it's going to happen. It'd be great if it does. Now, I've seen someone make a great point. They said, "Don't worry too much about the ratings right now because the league isn't fighting for their play their television lives this year. They have a ten year deal, okay, with NBC. This is only year one of a ten year deal, right? So the league didn't need to have some miraculous final that had amazing ratings this year to keep themselves on TV. NBC and the NBC Sports Network are a long term partner with the league. They have a ten year deal. This is just year one of that deal." So they have nine more years to have highly rated Stanley Cup Finals. When is the CBA expired? Well, the CBA is expired. So they're right. going to have so that, to be careful that they don't end up in a lockout. No, they absolutely don't want that. That would hurt the league a lot more than the ratings of this cup sure. could ever hurt the sure. league. All right, uh, over to the NBA. Uh, the Heat wow. Was, yeah. Shock. The Spurs looked like like the Kings kind yeah. of at this point. They were unbeatable. They, they won, 20 what, straight nine wins. in a row? 20 straight wins, 10 straight playoff wins. 10 straight playoff wins. And now Oklahoma City leads that series 3-2. to two. Uh, It looks like it's their series at this point. I mean, you know, game one, uh, the Spurs won 101-98. to 98, And I thought, okay, Oklahoma, they played a pretty good game, didn't quite win. No big deal. Let's see if they can get a split. In the next game, Oklahoma City puts up 111 points, and they didn't win. The Spurs got 120, won the game 120-111. I thought, wow, you're done, Oklahoma City. Sure. You're just done. Then they win game three, which is the biggest game of their season, at home by 20 points. And I kind of said to myself, well, the Spurs were due for a clunker. They had won 20 games in a row. They're due for that. But the I think the shock of... Shocks was that Oklahoma City was able to keep the momentum that they built at home and beat the Spurs in San Antonio yesterday, 108-103, to and now they have two games to close them out. They have one game at home and one game in San Antonio to do it. Yeah, I think they probably do end up doing it too, and uh, it'll lead for a great finals if it plays out the way I kind of believe it will. And uh, The Heat and Celtics are tied at two right now, but they could get Chris Bosh back as early as tonight. Right. I He's believe. questionable for game five tonight uh, as we record. Which could be just head games or what mind games they're playing. But 
Either way, uh, it just seems like a team destined to end up in the finals and Oklahoma City in the heat. I'm not a basketball guy, but that might get me to watch. You know, and that's another interesting series because Miami won the first two games at home. Yeah. Then Boston won game three. But game four, Boston had a huge lead that they almost blew. They ended up having to go to overtime to win it. And they did, but I still think that Miami's just a, a much better team than them. I kind of give Boston credit for making this a series, getting it to a best of three. And I think if they could if they could win this game five on the road, I think that they have, would have a great shot. But I think if Miami gets to game five, they're going to close them out one of the two times. Oh, yeah. And LeBron and, and, and Wade have been great, kind of taking turns at being great. Um, I think they had 70 points combined in one of the games. Crazy. So, yeah. What a great final it would be if it could be Miami and Oklahoma City. And uh, I think that most likely that's what most of the basketball world is hoping for, unless you're a Celtics or a Spurs fan, right? Yeah, and thankfully for the NBA, or for the NHL, neither of the LA teams are in there, or the ratings might be even worse. Right. So Good point. So the NBA is going to finish up their round, their conference finals between now and the next show. Um, so on our next podcast, we'll preview the NBA Finals with Lee Jenkins, Sounds just like good. we did last year. So uh, look forward to that, and we're going to take a break and come right back with Matt Wright's uh, Los Angeles Kings fan and blogger at viewfrommyseats.com. Our next guest is from Ontario, California, and is a graduate of UC Irvine. He is the creator and editor and chief of the website viewfrommyseats.com. The site was created in 2007 to be a place for diehard fans of all sports, but in 2009 it evolved to be a hockey-only site. He's also contributed on Yahoo's Puck Daddy and Hockeywood LA. Uh, he's also featured on ESPN Sports Center. Warm sportscasters, welcome to the very talented Matt Wrights. What's going on, Matt? Hey, Steve, what's going on, man? You know, the last time we talked was in October, and if I recall correctly, you predicted that the Kings would play in the Cup, and I want to say you said the Penguins, and then I kind of teased you and said, oh, wow, you picked the Sabres, and you really didn't pick the Sabres. I was just joking around, but I knew you said the Kings. Did you stick with them all season, or was there a point where you had given up on this team? Um, no, well, obviously, halfway through the season, there was no way that anybody thought that they were going to be going, you know, 15-2 and two through the playoffs. Uh, I, I thought the Canucks would have them. In fact, I thought in the, the Canucks would take care of them in the first round. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they still have things that always, always were there. There's the, what's the cliche, defense wins championships. And even though they couldn't score, their defense was was good. And when they were losing in the worst part of their season, they were losing one nothing. So, um, you know, I thought they were good. I thought they were they had a bad match in the first round, but I don't think anybody saw this coming. You know, there's a, a couple of turning points people have pointed to, but obviously an outstanding record since Jeff Carter joined the team at the trade deadline. When you saw that the Kings had decided to move on from Johnson and bring Carter in. What was your opinion at the time, uh, you know, kind of ignoring how things have worked out since? 
Well, it, there's a couple ways to look at that. I mean, I think that everyone around the Kings knew they needed somebody that could be a difference maker um, up front in the top two lines. And Jeff Carter was certainly some. I mean, the other name that was being floated around was was Rick Nash. And I mean, those were really the only two guys that would be classified as a difference maker. You know, the Kings have a history of going out and you know making a move at the deadline, and it's somebody like Anson Carter or, or Cliff Ronning or something. And that's that. That wasn't going to get it done. They needed somebody that could be a bona fide top six guy, and what that would do is it would take somebody like Jared Stoll, who was trying to play wing on the second line. I mean, first of all, he's he's an iffy second line guy, and second of all, he's a center. He's a natural center. So when you bring in somebody like Carter, you you put everybody in their natural position. Uh, another thing that people don't really talk about is, well, I guess they are now. Now that the Kings are getting a little more. Um, a little more ink is that right around the same time Jordan Nolan and Dwight King came in, and they might not be the best players in the world, but but they gave the Kings a different kind of identity, and you, you know they also gave them a lot more depth um, all season. I mean, last year, this year, Kyle Clifford was a guy that was a fourth, third, fourth line guy that you know they they had hopes that would be a second line guy. He's not even he's not even playing. In fact, when Richardson came in the lineup, it was for Gagne. So I mean, it's, it, there's a a lot more depth on this team, and I think that's been one of the big, the big things that has been a difference maker so far is that their third and fourth lines have been better than other people's third and fourth lines, and their top two lines can go against anybody. You know, Nolan is a kid who his dad coached the Sabres in Buffalo, and when his dad left here, he was a really a young kid still. Tell us a little bit about what kind of a player he is. Uh, he's, you know, the best way to describe him is Think about what kind of coach Ted Nolan was, and that's kind of the way Jordan Nolan plays on the ice, you know? He's a no-nonsense kind of guy. He's perfect for the fourth line. He's a fourth-line winger there. It's nice if he ever scores a goal, but he's there to bang. He's there to make life miserable for other teams. He's a responsible guy for being so young. Um, It's a little interesting. When he was playing in Manchester, he was more of a... He had much more of a, a grit. He was kind of... I don't want to say an enforcer, but he certainly had that part of his game. And, and he hasn't really done that so much at the NHL level. Maybe they don't need him to do that so much, but um, that was that was the kind of player he was, was the kind of guy that would drop the gloves and do whatever he'd do for his team. And now he's he's just playing with speed. He's getting in first in the forecheck and uh, just creating the energy with uh, guys like it was Richardson before and then Colin Frazier on the fourth line. So it's easy to say... Just uh, Jonathan Quick is the reason that the Kings are going to win this cup. I mean, he's the, probably the, the leader for the Conn Smythe. Probably the only other name uh, out there is, is Kopitar. Do you think it's? I mean, is is that would he get your vote for Conn Smythe? Would would you go to Quick? I mean, is he has he been? I mean, he's he's unbelievable to watch. He's so athletic. He plays the position a lot faster than almost any other goalie I, I've seen. I've, I've enjoyed watching him this spring, and he, he's been fantastic. But it seems like the team has been more than, than it's been more than just a Jonathan Quick show. I, I don't feel like he's stealing it by any means. No, I, I don't either. And that's you look at his numbers, and it's it's kind of interesting for people that are around the Kings, you know, and you see all the games where. Uh, right now, everybody's talking about how great he is, and his numbers are spectacular, and they're even better than they were in the regular season. But he's not really doing anything that he didn't during the regular season. 
Um, I mean, this is this is what he did. If you look at his record, I mean, he lost, I think it was nine games where he gave up one goal or less um, in regulation. I mean, there were games where he would, you know, have a shutout. It happened a couple times where he'd have a shutout and end up losing in a shootout. Um, so he's, he's done this most of the year. I think that um, the Kings do a good job of, for the most part, keeping um, everything to the outside. They really do a good job of protecting the front of the net. Um, they're not so much like the Devils and the Rangers where they'll block so many shots. Um, they just kind of keep everything to the outside, and the shots that they do allow usually aren't as dangerous. And um, it, it's a give-and-take thing where he doesn't leave a lot of rebounds, and the defense can trust him. But at the same time, you know, if there is a rebound, he can trust his defenseman to take care of, you know, whatever's in front. So, I mean, he's doing what he does. Uh, I, I just looked at the numbers. It's like, you know, his his goals against is, I think it's 1.36 or something. The save percentage is 950. I mean, those are, those are contrite numbers no matter what. Yes. Uh, uh, and, and that's where I think that he'll win it. But I think that if you asked me that question at the beginning of the series, I probably would have leaned, would have been leaning towards Dustin Brown, um, just because of what I mean. He was scoring, and he was near the you know the top of the the NHL leaderboard in scoring. But it was the tone that he was setting with the with the hitting, and he was scoring the big goals. And you know it, it's cliche, but he was doing the he was he was what you want your captain to be in the playoffs. You know, absolutely. So you're there in California, correct? I am. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it's like and kind of how it's built over the spring in terms of interest and casual fans and atmosphere. And I mean, have we gotten to the point where there's cars on the highways with the little flags in the window? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, you know, the best thing that could have happened to the King's marketing department was uh, the Lakers and Clippers losing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, there, there's it's a little bit of a misnomer that the, the Kings. It's such a bandwagon city, and every I think all thirty markets have a little bit of of that. I mean, obviously, Los Angeles is never going to be confused with Montreal or Toronto or something like that. But um, I mean, the franchise has been around for forty five years, and there's a pretty uh, hardcore diehard fan base that's around here. Um, the difference now, like you said, it's the fringe fan, it's the sports fan. That, you know, I have, you know, just in my personal life, I have plenty of friends that are, you know, they're, they're Laker fans, Dodger fans, Kings fans, whatever, but they'll watch, you know, 10, 20 games a year and they won't really, you know, eat and breathe it. But now it's, you know, they're questioning everything. It's like, oh, should Gagne be in the lineup? I mean, it's gone from kind of a casual interest to, you know, this is really going to happen and I want to be part of it. So, and I think that's every market. Uh, there's some, there's a little bit of that where, uh, you know, it's it's the big thing in town, and in Los Angeles especially, there are a lot of things competing for the entertainment dollar. You know, um, yeah. just between sports, there's entertainment, there's the beaches. I mean, I could, I love hockey, but I could, I could go nine months not go to a game, not see a game, and not be bored. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely very unique about the market. Um, do, where do you, what kind of impact do you think this has long term on hockey in Southern California? Ask me that question after the CBA is signed. Um, I think that that could really take the wind out of the sails, and that's kind of what happened last time the Kings went to the finals in '93. If you remember, um, we 
missed half of the season when the... 95, yeah. Uh, right, just a year won. and a half later. Right. Right, right. It was, yeah, it was just a year and a half later. And that, the, from the grassroots level, 93 still resonates here. Uh, you know, there are kids that are getting drafted. I mean, you hear about the Gretzky effect around the draft all the time. Um, and that, it, it is the Gretzky effect, but it's more the, the 93 finals effect because that really, really was when hockey grabbed a hold of this city. And it, it, you're seeing it the same way. You know, I'll talk to people that weren't hockey fans back then or weren't really even sports fans, and they're like, I can't believe. I can't believe what's going on around you right now. This is, and it's like, yeah, this, I told you, this is what happens. This place, everybody loves a winner. So, <laughs> so um, the key is the people that are coming into the, to the arena, you know, for the first or second time or the people that are coming back, they're like, oh, I love this. I forgot how much I loved it. you got to keep them. And that's a lockout could hurt that because I know the Kings just, I know their season ticket, I'm sorry, their season ticket sales are through the roof right now. And um, they just signed a deal with Fox Sports that, um, you know, I think their share was $12 million before. And um, Fox Sports tore it up and it's going to be $21 million, which puts them in the top 10 of the NHL. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, those are things, those are things that happen that help here and now. And even the Kings were saying, you know, that money is going to go towards, you know, re-signing Jonathan Quick in the future. And, you know, they, they just said last week that they were interested in Zach Parise. I have no idea how they would fit that into the cap. But you know what? <laughs> God bless them if that's what they want to go after. Um, they're not talking about rebuilding. They're not talking about going after fringe players. They, want, they know they have to have a marquee team with marquee players that wins if they want to. Um, it, it's not just attendance, but if they want to capture the imagination of the sports fan in Southern California, it's going to take a little more than just a 50-win season. Kind of the last thing here, you know, on Hockey Night in Canada last night, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, Don Cherry kind of, well, first he showed the Dowdy goal, the end-to-end goal he scored, and then he showed some similar goals that Orr scored. And, I mean, it's not fair to Dowdy to say, oh, he's got to have a career like Bobby Orr or whatever, but it's not often that a guy comes around that potentially has that kind of upside, you know, that actually has the potential to have a, a, a world class Hall of Fame career. Do you do you think Dowdy can can play himself into a role where it's a it's the Dowdy effect in the draft a few years, you know, 10 15 years down the road? Or do you think his position is going to kind of hurt him? Well, I think that the potential's there for sure. Um you'll see flashes. I I think that, you know, it's just kind of like anytime you talked about forward and comparing him to Gretzky, you just it's something you can't really do. I mean, there's Orr and there's everybody else. Right. Um, they, but talking about his potential, uh, I, I think that play really uh, encapsulated what he can do because the play started where he went back into his own zone and, you know, him and Clarkson were pretty pretty close. He had a step on him. But, you know, the way he turned, it, was, it wasn't really anything spectacular. It was just poise. It was the poise that you see from somebody that's like 35, you know, because you need a veteran presence on the, on the back end. And that's kind of what they're talking about, and he's 22, and he can do that. Um, and then, you know, everybody's going to remember the part where he basically went one on four and, and snapped that goal. And it was, it was a great goal, but he, he shows flashes like that. And I think that the... the 
oh, what was it that Mark Twain said? The rumors of my death were greatly um, exaggerated. It, it's kind of like that, where when they were saying that he wasn't playing, he wasn't great, I, I think that people were hammering him a little harder than they needed to because they didn't see him. If you remember, he really burst on the scene when everybody was watching him on during the Olympics. Olympics right. And, and yeah. now everybody's talking about it again because everybody's watching him again. Um, he didn't really put up the numbers, and there's no there's no doubt that he was a disappointment early in the year because he, he was out of shape with the holdout and everything else. But, you know, even when he is is playing, he's not putting up the numbers, he's still one of the best defensemen on a team that has six very good defensemen. Um I, I just think that sometimes people lose track of, I mean, he's a good two-way defenseman. He also has that, that knack for the spectacular also. You mix the, that with the poise and you have the makings of a guy that can certainly be a difference maker for 20 years. Well, I'll tell you what, Matt, we're going to be thinking about you in the next couple of days. I, I know we've kind of done this interview, like the Kings already have won the cup. And I hope, I hope, you know, like in two weeks, you're not like, looking to fly down here and like stab us for jinxing you or anything like that. But uh, I don't think that's going to happen. The website is uh view from my com and Twitter is the same at view from my seats. Uh, all I can say is we're jealous and uh, enjoy it. Whatever it is. All right. Thanks Matt. <laughs> Thanks team. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. All right, we have to thank Matt Wrights from ViewFromMySeats.com for being on the show. I also want to thank Albert Chen and Jeff Perlman. And all I can really say about that interview with Matt is what a lucky bastard. Can you imagine, <laughs> Don, what it would be like in Buffalo right now if tomorrow the Sabres had a home game up 3 nothing in the cup, cup yeah. with the cup in the building? It would be crazy. I mean, what a what a feeling. You know, it's It's got to be amazing. So good for Matt and good for the Kings. Uh, one last piece of business today is pick four, but before we get to that, I want to remind you to check us out on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Don't forget to uh, follow us on Twitter. We're at sports underscore casters. Email us to sportscasters at gmail.com and make sure you email us by Monday if you're interested in winning uh, one of the books that we have available. Many books. Many books there. Um, also, check out our blogs at sportscasters.blogspot.com and sportscasters.tumblr.com. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're going to get to do any live blogs for Game 6 or 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals this year. No. Um, but we'll think of something to do there soon. And I do owe... It'd be crazy if we did. That would be crazy. And it would be fun if we get to that. Sure. And I do owe a blog still to the guy from... NHLGMs.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just one more plug for that. www.nhlgms.com if you're interested in an amazing coffee table book about NHL GMs. Uh, but if you're looking for any of this information on where to find us, where to find uh, the podcast, you can find it at www.sports-casters.com. Don't forget to check out our other podcast at footballnation.com. This week we have the AFC South blogger. Uh, from ESPN.com on to talk AFC South football. And I think we're going to do a fantasy show uh, next week for that. So if you're a big fantasy football guy, uh, look at our Football Nation podcast at www.footballnation.com. Yeah, we just, we mentioned how we liked the AFC South interview. And even though that might not be the premier division as far as like glitz and glamour goes, it was kind of a fun interview and 
it's easy material because everyone's got a there's fans of teams everywhere, so we'll probably end up doing that for most of the divisions. We might not get to all of them before right. the season starts, but yeah, since it's so slow, Don and I were saying it might be good to just kind of focus division to division. Sure. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna work on that, but that's at www.footballnation.com. So last thing to do here today is pick four. Don, why don't you get? Oh, recapping pick four from last week. Before we get to this week, I went three and one. Won the game of the week, Kings over the Devils, two to one in overtime. Uh, had the Heat over the Celtics. I believe that was game Six, two or two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one fifteen to one eleven. Uh, my w- pitcher won last week. Derek Lowe and the Indians beat the Twins seven to one. My only loss, and as we mentioned earlier, kind of shockingly, is I thought the Spurs would win in five games or less. And after a twenty game winning streak, they've lost the last three games in that series. <laughs> on the brink of eliminate. Elimination. So uh, Don, get us go. Oh, and Don was two and two. Heat over the Celtics. He had that one. Uh, his pitcher Ryan Dempster. No thanks to him. Cubs did win that game, eight to six. Yeah, thank God. And he lost. He had the Devils in game one, and he thought the Kings would lose both games on the road. Uh, they're still they sure undefeated could've. on the road. Sure could have sure lost either or both of those. Yep. And that's how close these things can be sometimes. Yep. Uh, but he is forty-one and fifty on the season. I am forty-nine and forty. Now you can give it to us. All right, time to make up some ground here. Game of the week this week is that uh, Spurs Oklahoma City game six, which will be played Wednesday at nine on TNT. I don't have a real reason for this. The series has almost been a coin flip. Oklahoma City's won lately, and it's kind of been my team this year to pick when I needed to win. So I'm going to stick with them and take them at home. I'm going to take the Spurs just because I I can't believe they're going to go down without a fight here. (laughs) You know, it would be shocking to me if this team would win 20 games in a row. You know, they won 10 straight playoff games. If they just fall apart, I don't know. I just, I think that they're, they're well coached. They have vets. And I think that they're a team that can go on the road and pick themselves up and win. I don't know if that means they win game seven. I don't know. Uh, but I'm going to have to go with the Spurs and, and just hope that they can pick themselves off the mat. My host choice this week, which I'm going to go to because it's the other basketball game, uh, that's game six. Game five will be tonight between the Heat and Celtics. Uh, game six will be Thursday night at 8.30 on ESPN. And regardless of what happens tonight, I'm going to go with the Heat. I just feel like they have a destiny for the, the championship. I don't know that they win it necessarily. But they're a team on a mission, and I, I think they get there. So give me the heat in game six. All right, my host choice. I'm going to pick game four of the Stanley Cup Finals, uh, Wednesday, 8 o'clock. Unfortunately, it's on the NBC Sports Network. Yeah, and unfortunately, I, I just don't see the Devils winning it. I know the Kings have made a habit of losing game four at home <laughs> in the playoffs. They've done it twice. But I just think that the Cup will be in the building. The place is going to be crazy, and it's their trophy to win. And why would I pick against them? Uh, so I'm going to say that the Kings will win the cup. And I'm disappointed just because I wanted a long series because that's what's best for the league, and I love the league. But Yeah, it's been a pretty decent playoffs, too, up until this point. It's kind of it's kind of stalled out around the conference finals. I mean, Devils and Rangers was okay. Yeah. Not as good as I thought, maybe. And, you know, the Kings just totally annihilated the Predators. Yeah, the story of Devils-Rangers is probably, probably the coaches more than anything, so... Uh, my bold prediction this week, I'm going to say uh, me and Steve both went with the same idea here. It's kind of hard to pick something bold. bold I mean, any, I'm not going to pick the Devils to win the next four games or anything it's crazy like that. So 
we both are just going to pick a game-winning goal scorer for game four, and I'm going to go with Dustin Brown. I'm going to say it's Simone Gagne, just kind of acting on a hunch here. He got back in the lineup, played about seven minutes in game three. think he'll get a little bit more time and be a great story for a guy to come back in the Stanley Cup Finals and get the game-winning goal in the clinching game of the Stanley Cup. So I'm going to go with Gagne only for that reason, have, have a little bit of fun with it. All you need to get your name on the cup is one game, right? Yeah, he's on it now. So he'd be on it. Yep, he's on it. He played his game. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if the Devils, going into game four here, decide to get uh, Henrik Talinder in a game. Oh. You know, maybe maybe they make a change. He's been cleared to play. Yeah. be interesting to see what they do. But that's the show for today. Again, I want to thank Matt Wright, Albert Chen, and Jeff Perlman for joining us. Don't forget to email us, sportscasters at gmail.com. And let us know what book you want to win. We'll be back next week with Season 2, Episode number 23, Don Q the Hip. All right.